Welcome, everybody. My name is Jasmohan Bajaj. I'm the new co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with my colleague, Dr. Millie Long, who is at uh, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I am professor of medicine in Virginia Commonwealth University and the Richmond VA Medical Center in Richmond, Virginia. And as part of our podcast series, this is the first podcast of 2022, and it's my distinct pleasure to interview Dr. Philip Katz, who's professor of medicine at the J. Monaghan Center for GI Health in Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City. And he will be talking with us about the recently published ACG Clinical Guideline for the Diagnosis and Management of Gastroesophageal Reflux Disease. Welcome, Dr. Katz. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you to the college for the opportunity to do this today. So this is a very provocative update of the guidelines that were last published in 2012, and it has been all over social media, and it's been very cited and very much looked at by people in the lay press, as well as many people who treat patients and want to treat patients appropriately. So I have a lot of questions, which I think would help our readers a whole lot. So what do you think is the optimal method for a GI practitioner to diagnose GERD in 2022? And how has that been updated over the last few years? So the current guideline is, for all practical purposes, a modification and update of the previous guideline. And it's taken into account advancements in endoscopic diagnosis, advancement in reflux monitoring with either a telemetry capsule or impedance pH, and quite frankly, in the background, issues related to long-term use of proton pump inhibitors. So while it is still reasonable to suspect GERD in the setting of typical heartburn and regurgitation, even if it's combined with chest pain, the emphasis in the guideline is to use objective testing when needed to be more certain. So a perfect response to a trial or a PPI for heartburn and regurgitation, that's probably GERD. And one can follow an algorithm to attempt to try to decrease the dose to find the lowest dose. Then if the patient relapsed, they should be evaluated. I believe, honestly, the optimal way to diagnose GERD um, is with an endoscopy and a pH monitoring study. But in concert with a typical history, uh, that's a reasonable approach. The extraesophageal patient is different based on evidence as well. Um, and I believe you're going to ask me yes. a little bit more about that later. This, uh, but it's great because this, is, this sparks so much conversation. And it's nice to know that some things have remained the same, but other things have been formalized a little bit more in the guidelines as more and more of the evidence emerges. And I particularly like the wonderful flow charts that you have that are very useful for the practitioner that is not only from the colleges around the world as well. So the next question is 24-hour pH testing off versus on PPI is often an area of controversy and concern. Some people want to do it on PPI, some people do it off PPI. The guidelines has very clear thoughts on this. So what are your thoughts in this so again, the goal was to streamline that never-ending controversy, it seems. And to keep it simple, people who have never had an objective diagnosis of GERD should have a monitoring study done off of PPI. I really don't believe there's a lot of argument over that. Whether they've had an empiric trial without an endoscopy, whether they have an extraesophageal symptom, never had an objective diagnosis off PPI. The primary use of an on-therapy study 
in this case with impedance added, is in a patient who has proven GERD, has had objective evidence of GERD, and has an incomplete response to a proton pump inhibitor. And you're looking to determine whether or not the continued symptoms are due to some form of continued reflux. Thank you. That's very helpful. As you had previously alluded to, extraesophageal symptoms of GERD are the bane of a lot of GI people's existence. It's really impairing patients' quality of life. So there's a nice focus on extraesophageal symptoms of GERD in a large part of this guideline. And there is an interesting flowchart that guides the readers through it. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the thought process that the guideline writing committee had and how you were able to formulate these very important and difficult concepts into these flowcharts? If I may comment as an aside, I find your approach wonderfully challenging. And on the part of my co-authors, I really appreciate how carefully you've read the guideline. It's just nice. Anyway, we took a long time to think about this area in which evidence is soft at best. There are a lot of conditional recommendations with evidence that clearly could be better. But to keep it short, we felt, as clearly did the reviewers and the journal, that it was really imperative to carefully look for other causes besides GERD for extraesophageal symptoms. And that unless there was clear evidence of heartburn, that patients not get empirically treated with proton pump inhibitors without a diagnosis that was made either endoscopically or with a pH study. My bias is, is even people with heartburn should have an objective evidence of GERD because of the extraesophageal symptoms. But on balance, that, I think, is a key change and really a key feature. People who have heartburn to go with their extraesophageal symptoms and they get empirically treated, if their symptoms don't go away, then they would fall back into the flowchart or the algorithm that would be similar to any other symptom where they would undergo an objective workup. Thank you so much. And I know these are very hard questions to answer. And because of the ubiquitousness of PPI therapy, treat high quality trials are often very difficult to do in the extraesophageal GERD. And the readers are really encouraged to look at the figures two and three, which is not just a extraesophageal GERD, but incompletely treated GERD as well. Just going to make a brief comment. If we have time, the extraesophageal patient becomes really problematic when they don't get better. And thinking about surgery for extraesophageal disease in the absence of heartburn or objective evidence of GERD should really be done at the clinician's peril. And that is probably the major reason for objectifying GERD for people who don't respond to PPIs and have extraesophageal symptoms. Thank you. That's a very important point. And I think our readers will be very happy to know about this because the more objective the evidence, the more likely you are going to hang your hat on the future definitive treatments for GERD. Building off of that, there's also very nice sections on refractory GERD that we had actually talked about as well, which is a challenging problem. The guidelines very nicely breaks this down into those who had previously objectively defined GERD versus those who not. You have alluded to this a little bit before in the prior comments, but can you speak to this? And what specific aspects would lead you to recommend more invasive measures in people who have refractory GERD versus not? The objectively defined GERD patient, the of esophagitis grade B, C, or D, clearly C or D, or long Barrett's, or somebody who had a previously abnormal pH study and is refractory to PPI becomes a candidate for surgery. At that point, the patient should either have a further workup with an impedance pH study done on 
optimally dose PPI, which would be twice a day before breakfast and dinner for a minimum of four weeks, but preferably eight, to look for continued reflux, either weekly or non-acidic reflux in a small number, or potentially a reflux symptom association, so-called reflux sensitivity, so that the people who have coexistent functional disease can be ruled out. Now, there's a, a side caveat to the algorithm in the guidelines, and I think it's important to focus on the symptom of regurgitation, in which there's clear evidence that PPIs are not as effective for that symptom as they are for heartburn or even perhaps for chest pain, and that good level one evidence suggests that anti-reflux surgery and or magnetic sphincter augmentation and probably in the right patient transoral incision or spondoplication or TIF is probably more effective in relieving regurgitation in a PPI. So there's a part of the algorithm that says in the truly objectified patient in which regurgitation is the predominant symptom, they could break off and potentially go directly for a mechanical procedure. The other part of the algorithm, which I'll address in basically one sentence, is if you haven't had an objective diagnosis and you're refractory to PPI, you got to stop the drug and you got to go work the patient up. It's not very complicated. So optimize PPI, still no good symptom relief, stop the PPI and do an endoscopy and a pH study off there. That's really good advice because, you know, so many times patients are often become a victim of PPI, then take PPI off, put PPI back on. And the symptoms, which may not have been GERD at all, now get treated with these invasive procedures that should never have been put in. And to your prior point, this should be done at the peril of the clinician. Building off these very important points, how would you guide our readers towards choosing between MSA, which is magnetic sphincter augmentation, as you pointed out, the transoral, intraoral transfundoplication, and or actual surgery for eligible patients. So if you had a patient that you were wanting to choose between any of these three options who were eligible, how would you define which procedure would be best? So here you're going to get a little bit of an opinion, and hopefully the guidelines will speak to this in the best way possible. The first start for my practice and our group is experience. So if you have an experienced therapeutic endoscopist or surgeon who does transoral incision spondoplication or TIF, then that's in play for the right patient. The ideal TIF patient for TIF alone is someone with a very small hernia, uh, I believe one centimeter or two max. I prefer even less. No hernia is ideal. A grade one Hill valve regurgitation is their primary symptom. And the patient does not want to have an operation because this is a procedure that has made very nice inroads and can be very successful for the classic patient. Small hernia, regurgitation is the predominant symptom, doesn't want to have an operation doesn't want to remain on a PPI. A TIF can also be combined with a hiatal hernia repair. Uh, we didn't address this in detail in the guidelines in part because of lack of evidence, to be quite honest, but that is really not the subject of your question. If you don't have somebody around who's done a lot of magnetic sphincter augmentation, it doesn't take it off the table, but uh, it does require some experience. And basically, uh, MSA, as you have abbreviated it, is ideal for a modest size hernia, someone with normal motility. Regurgitation is the prominent symptom, prefers, again, not to take a PPI or more likely is refractory in the hands of an experienced surgeon. 
people who are concerned about fundoplication, adverse events, like not being able to belch and vomit when they really focus hard on them, that's an ideal candidate. Now, in the hands of the super users, those who've been doing MSA since its inception in 2012, when it was approved in the United States, are doing big hernias. But in general, we stay away from people with big hernias and any motility abnormality. There are some data saying that you can do uh, an MSA in anybody you can do a fundoplication in, to be very honest. So some of it is choice of the patient and choice of the dealer. Now in general, surgery of any type is really a patient choice. And I hope the guidelines are clear that it's a discussion that needs to be had with people who require long-term proton pump inhibitors. And those are grade C and D patients. Those are Barrett's patients. Those are patients who just don't want to take high doses of medicine to have successful symptom relief. Choosing between the three of them, kind of a hierarchy for me. The people with the worst disease are going to end up with a hiatal hernia repair and a fundoplication or an MSA. Those with milder disease who are uncomfortable having uh, an operation uh, of a traditional type, then that's the ideal patient for a primary tip. Thank you so much. And I think a very important point raised with the obesity epidemic is the consideration of RU-NY gastric bypass as an option to treat GERD in obese patients. And could you speak a little bit more about that as well, that the guidelines put in as a recommendation? That's a wonderfully controversial topic, but tricky business because there are conflicting data on outcomes of fundoplication in people with elevated BMIs, depending upon the country, depending on the study. There are many people who believe that the best operation for GERD in someone who is obese is a RUY gastroplasty because uh, it eliminates any acids secreting cells from being able to have access to the esophagus. And the data support that that's the case. I believe we actually softened that recommendation a little bit, even though it still gets quite a nice evidence grade, simply because there are people who are quite comfortable doing fundoplications in people who are overweight, and part because there is some debate on overall outcomes with other obesity operations in GERD. But you are absolutely correct. The RUI is a place to be thinking, and I believe that the high-quality surgeons should always keep that in the mix when they see people who are quite overweight, who are thinking about anti-reflux surgery. Thank you. This is a very important uh, point that you've raised, which the right patient, the right environment, as well as the right experienced staff, in addition to the people with the right you know, expectations from whatever you would offer to these patients. And the guidelines have done a great job putting that through. Another very important point that the guidelines have raised, which has literally raged through the entire GI literature, is the controversies regarding long-term PPIUs. There is a thorough analysis of this evidence. What is your advice for readers whose patients have concerns about long-term PPIUs? I think people will benefit from reading this part of the guidelines and trying to put in perspective the very, very difficult issue that this has become. I hope we've made clear, and again, this evidence is not able to be graded in the traditional sense. So they're all labeled as key concepts. The balance of data strongly supports that PPIs are safe. They're safe long-term and that direct evidence for harm just cannot be found in the literature outside of perhaps enteric infections. So that 
before people stop these drugs because of worry, that they think about what the risk-benefit profile is and what the alternatives are to not taking the drugs. Simply going by the adage, lowest possible dose for every patient, try and get every patient off is one that clearly makes logical sense to any clinician regardless of their specialty. But these are incredibly safe drugs. They work incredibly well. All the level one evidence suggests that they're safe. Thank you so much for this. And thank you so much for your time today for recording this podcast with us. On behalf of all of your other colleagues who were in the guidelines writing committee, uh, we thank all of you. We thank the ACG for providing this uh, wonderful guideline. And thank you again for your time, Philip. Thank you to the journal and good luck with your new editorship. I believe the college has made an excellent choice. So enjoy your time.